We're in a series called What About Me? That's not a narcissistic thought. Any of you think that we're just all about us? We're not. That question is in response to uh, some series that we've been teaching, series that we've been going through through the spring, um, all about the gospel, all about the person and work of Jesus Christ, focusing on who he is, what he has done, and then asking ourselves, who am I supposed to be and what am I supposed to, to do? Yes, the God is good, God is great, Jesus is worthy, the Holy Spirit is powerful. What about me? What's my response? Does it stop at believing? Does it stop at saying yes, walking down an aisle, filling out a card? Does it stop at that? What about me? The answer is no. And every week we've given um, some sort of que- uh, answer to that question. And so this, me- this week, that question, what about me? The answer I'd like to give is this. Be faithful. Write it down. Tattoo it somewhere. Be faithful. Be faithful. You know, people of the, of the faith are becoming some of the most faithless and unfaithful people around. <laughs> would you guys agree with me with that? Some of you would. Let me say it again. People of the faith are starting to become some of the most faithless and unfaithful people around. When you think about faith, the foundation of faith is that it is a a firm conviction or belief in something. So for the Christian, it's a firm conviction that God is God. He's unbelievably powerful. He's unbelievably loving He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our service and our devotion to Him. The Christian faith is about Jesus, His Son, who was sent to live and to die. It's a firm conviction that He is the saving one, that He came to live and to die and to rise again and to win the victory over sin and death. And our faith is about a firm conviction that God sent His Spirit He gave His Holy Spirit to us, to the believer, to lead us into all truth. Amen? And we believe here at Soma that all those who have responded with a yes, who have have, uh, taken a drink of the cup of salvation, who who have drank the cup of wine that says, I am in covenant with God. I am in covenant with the bridegroom, have become betrothed to him and await a day when he will return for his bride. A bride who has her oil lamp, lit, uh, oil lamp ready to light. A bride who is watching, a bride who is waiting, keeping herself away from anyone who would woo her, woo her away from her bridegroom. That's our faith. Our faith is like a wedding ring. You know what I mean? Our faith is like a wedding ring, and we wear it proudly, unashamedly. We wear it out telling everybody that I'm taken. I'm spoken for. Amen? You tracking with me so far? You with me? I'm a little intense this morning because I'm very passionate about what I'm going to be talking about. You know, when we say that we have faith, we're saying that I believe that God is the only one for me. I have a wedding ring to prove it. I have the faith to prove it. God is the only one for me. Whenever I say that I have faith, I'm saying that I 
place my trust in him and him alone. And I have Psalm 73 verse 26 stamped somewhere on my body, in my heart, in my brain, in my soul. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is my portion. He is all that I need. He is everything that I need. He will always be enough. He is always there. All, listen to me, all other lovers fail in comparison to the lover of my soul. And I hope that's the attitude and heart of everybody that's in this room, that we are faith-filled and that we are faithful. All other lovers pale in comparison to the one who is the lover of my soul. That is faith in God. That is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. No more lovers. He's my bridegroom. I am a bride in waiting. I am ready for him. I got the oil in my lamp. Of course, you guys know that the oil in Scripture represents the Holy Spirit. I've got the Holy Spirit here. And I'm waiting for the day where I will come home and be with my bridegroom. Because he will come for me. I am his bride. We have made a covenant. We have drunk the cup of wine together. I have drank, I've tasted of the cup of salvation. You know, you think about this book, and faith is the, is the theme of the good book. You guys, anybody still call it the good book? This is the good book. You know, oh, well, I got a good book on my coffee table, you know. It's the good book. And the theme of this book is faith. And the number one sub-theme of this book is faithfulness. Maybe that would be the same thing. Faith is a theme. Maybe, you know, whatever. Faithfulness. <laughs> faithfulness. If there was a sub-theme, that would be the one. Faithfulness. Because the theme of the book is faith. We as God's chosen people, are to be faithful to the faith that we have proclaimed, that we have professed. I would say that the majority of us in this room have a professing faith. We have, we have professed it out loud. We've been baptized. We walked an aisle. We said the prayer, whatever it is. And if that's true, then you have become the chosen one of God and you have a responsibility to be faithful to that faith, that firm conviction that God is God, Jesus is the Son, and He has filled us with His Holy Spirit. Amen? That is our responsibility. I was thinking, actually, um, earlier this morning, I was thinking about how uh, the good book, you know, and there's a great story, and how faithfulness is like the protagonist. You know, all you English majors, stick with me. It's like faithfulness is the protagonist of the story. You know what I mean? The good guy. You know? And the antagonist, the bad guy, the person who's always up against the protagonist and what he's trying to accomplish, the antagonist is not the devil. It's not trials and tribulations. It's not difficult times. It's not a stressful job. The antagonist is unfaithfulness. The antagonist in this story is unfaithfulness. Our lack of self-control to say no when other appealing options come along. That's the antagonist. That's what's working against faithfulness. It's exactly what James 1 says. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. Carried away by what? The stress of my job? 
Carried away by what? The difficult times I'm going through? Carried away by what? The devil popping out of the bush scaring me? That's not what James says. He says, each one, each one of us, each believer is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Some of your versions say his own desires. Some of your versions say his own passions. Our own passions, our own desires. The ones that are lining up with the flesh rather than the spirit are the things that entice us away to become unfaithful Christ followers. In fact, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 real quick. I want you to turn there if you can. 2 Timothy chapter 3. A lot of us are, are familiar with this. This is a, a little forecast into the last days. You know, there's, there's scriptures that say in the last day there's going to be um, storms and rumors of war and all kinds of this and all kinds of that, and earthquakes and famines and all this stuff. And those are definitely indicators of the time, but the real indicator of the last days is right here. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now I'm going to actually, I wrote down out of the uh, Amplified. I'm teaching out of the uh, New American Standard. But I'm going to read it actually out of the Amplified. It says, but understand this, that in the last days will come, will set in, perilous times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. For people, and this is what's going to be hard to bear, hard to deal with. For people will be lovers of self, and utterly self-centered, lovers of money, and aroused by an inordinate, say that, inordinate greedy desire for wealth, proud, arrogant, and contemptuous boasters. They will be abusive, blasphemous, and scoffing, disappointments to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and profane. They will be treacherous, betrayers. They will be rash and inflated with self Conceit. They will be lovers of sensual pleasures and vain amusements. Everybody say vain amusements. More than and rather than lovers of God. That's the real indication of the times. We, knew, we need to look at the rumors of war. We do need to look at the crazy hurricanes and the crazy earthquakes. And we do need to look at those. But we may not experience those. I may not experience an earthquake here in Tyler, Texas. <laughs> but I tell you what, I sure am experiencing some 2 Timothy 3. How about you? And there's at times, unfortunately, where I'm displaying much of 2 Timothy 3. This is talking about believers. Because in the very next thing it says, Avoid such of these. For among them are those who are enter into households and, capt- and uh, captivate weak women, weak Women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's talking about believers. Remember what I said at the beginning. People of faith are becoming some of the most faithless and unfaithful people around. Now, we should all really memorize 2 Timothy chapter 3. But you know what? Just in case you don't have time... Maybe you don't have the mental capacity to memorize it. Just memorize it this way. In the last days, people will be unfaithful. Bottom line. People will be unfaithful. You know, there's a, some of you may be familiar with the time in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, where Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes, when the bridegroom comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
Will he find a bride that is ready? Will he find faithfulness on the earth? I mean, that's Jesus asking the question, and Jesus knows a lot. Will he find faith on the earth? And what will he be looking for? What will he be looking for in a bride? What's he after? Is he looking for, for pretty hair? Is Jesus looking for a curvy body? Is he looking for some nice, fake, long eyelashes? He's looking for faithfulness. Jesus is looking for faithfulness. If you ever wondered, what's Jesus looking for in my life? I wonder. It's faithfulness. You can dress yourself up all day long and get your outward appearance looking top notch. But that's not what he's looking for. In fact, write this down. Faithfulness is the greatest sign of devotion to Christ. Faithfulness is the greatest sign of devotion to Christ and the greatest display of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. In fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, if you ever doubt if you were saved, you know what I mean? How we kind of walk around like, eh, am I really saved? Am I really going to heaven? You know how we are. We're just kind of goofy. Every now and then the enemy wiggles in. You know. If you ever had a doubt, if you had the Holy Spirit living in you, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Because the scripture says we be filled continuously. If you ever wondered if you're saved or if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, ask yourself this question. How faithful am I? How faithful am I? Am I the kind of person that the bridegroom is coming back for? Am I a good bride? Am I faithful? You know, my wife and I, Melissa and and the staff as well, we're, we're all about assessing. Assessing ourselves. Always asking ourselves, can I, can I do things better? Is there anything that needs to change? Is there any place I need to grow? What can we do better? What are we doing that's terrible? How can we change it? You know, earlier when we said, say, I believe. You need to say that. Do you believe? We sang a song, I believe, I believe. We need, that's some assessing. Do I believe? Another great question to ask periodically, am I faithful? Am I a faithful person? Would I be described on my epitaph as a, and Tony, the faithful one. <laughs> The faithful man, the faithful man of God. Would I be described? Would faithfulness be used? Would faithful be used as a description at the end of my life as part of my legacy? Am I faithful? You know, Marvin was talking about you know principles in the Word. In fact, it's very cool that he said this. He talked about being faithful, you know, in little things. That's like it's one of the greatest principles you find. It's all over the Bible. Being faithful. In the little, Luke 16, 10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. In other words, be faithful in the little things and you will be trusted with greater things. That's a biblical principle. Apply it to whatever you want to. God is in the business of being trusted and trusting his people. Why? Because we're in covenant together. What kind of marriage is it? What kind of a relationship is it when it's not a two-way street of trust? He wants to trust. He's put within you the ability to be trusted, but are we trustworthy? Are we faithful? Are we being faithful in the little things? Name it. Anything. Anything small. Are we being faithful in it? 
If we are, there's a principle in God's word that commands a blessing. I am not saying that we command God, but because of who he is and what he puts out there for us in his word, his promises, it literally, my faithfulness in a small area commands him to move. Your theology may not be lined up with that, but it is all over the word. Our actions can command the blessings of the Lord. Not that we're demanding, there's a difference. But my faithfulness causes God to say, I have no choice. I got to move on his behalf. He's faithful. You know what I mean? It's just all over the word. Faithful in the little things, you will be entrusted with much. Now, I believe that there's three areas where believers must be faithful. And I want you to write these down. Three areas. Well, there's more, I'm sure. But the three areas this week that I think are most important because they're like the the pegs that everything else hangs on, I believe. Three areas where believers must be faithful. And the first one is obvious. It's our relationship with God. We must have a good relationship with God. Everything else usually falls in line. Our relationship is good with God. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. All these other things will be added to it. You don't have to worry, fret, anxiety can take a break because God's on the throne. When our relationship with God, there's faithfulness. We know he's faithful. We just sang about it. Faithful, always faithful. That's Kermit the Frog singing that song. True. This is Porky Pig. Always, whoa. You know. He's faithful. Are we faithful? Are we walking out our side of the covenant? I want to look at Jonah. Can we look at Jonah? Because it's a great example. Turn to Jonah. And just go ahead and turn to chapter 1. We're going to look at mostly at chapter 2. I was thinking about Jonah this week, you know. Jonah, we're so much like Jonah in so many other ways. I think this is a great example of what's going on here. Most of us know the story of Jonah. It starts out with it saying, <coughs> The word of the Lord came to Jonah because Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. He never really got it. Ooh, ooh. You know? But Jonah was a prophet. Okay? So he had a relationship with God. He was in covenant with God. He heard from God. He spent time with God. He knew God. God knew him. He's just like us. Had a relationship with God. God spoke to him. Used him. There was a relationship going on. We are just like Jonah. Jonah's just like us. He probably dressed a little differently. You know what I mean? But we're just like him. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. God was calling Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and preach the gospel, for lack of a better way of saying it. Boast highly of me. Call these people who are a wicked and perverse generation to come and repent and follow after me. Go and spread the word to Nineveh. And look what it says Jonah did. It says, Jonah got up and got out of town. It says that he fleed in the opposite direction of where God was telling him to go. Now, there's all kinds of debates as to why that happened. You know, I think ultimately, well, I think two things at least. Jonah was scared. He was terrified of Nineveh because Nineveh was a scary place full of scary people. It was a wicked place full of wicked people doing wicked things, hitting people with fish and all kinds of weird things. You know, you wouldn't want to go there. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. 
And he was probably terrified. This good, nice, little, hear-from-God Jewish prophet boy go to the town of Nineveh where he's going to get hit upside the head with a mackerel. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not what he was wanting. But the other thing is this. Uh, I, think that, I think ultimately that Jonah knew, because you read the rest of the story, Jonah knew God's character. It's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Faithful and just to forgive. I know that if I go down there and preach the word of the Lord, God's going to forgive those jerks. I ain't going. Because he was a good Jewish boy with lots of good Jewish prejudices against everybody that wasn't Jewish. Sinners. Defiled people. Amen? He had a chip on his shoulder against Nineveh and the people there. I ain't going to do it. I know God. He's going to come through. So he headed in the opposite direction. We could stop right there and say, uh, that describes like almost all of my thinking. Because we are fearful people and full of hate. It may manifest itself in different ways, show itself in different ways, but that's the type of people that we tend to be. Full of fear, full of hate and prejudices, prejudices and preferences. I prefer to do what I want to do and go where I want to go. You know what I mean? So look at what it says. So we know the story. We know that Jonah disobeys God, goes in the opposite direction, hops on a, a ship to Tarshish. Along the way, we know that, that there's a big storm that comes. We know that, um, that the people on the ship who were pagans, they said, why is this happening? Why is this happening? They cast lots to see what's going on. Lot fell on Jonah. You're the guy. And what do we need to do to get rid of the storm? They said, Jonah said, well, you probably need to throw me off the ship because I, I realize I'm I might be far from home. You know what I mean? <laughs> All the metaphors intended. You know what I mean? I'm far from home. So they throw him overboard. He's out there in the ocean. It says that a great fish, a big fish, came and swallowed him up. And we know that he was in the fish's belly for three days, three nights. And that's where it picks up in chapter 2. Let's look at that. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of a fish. Before we go any further, let me just tell you that that's, that's where unfaithfulness will put you. In the, in the stomach of a fish, in the belly of a whale. It's never a fun place. It never has a sweet fragrance. It's always got more of a tuna twist. You know what I mean? <laughs> Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and said, I called out in my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried from help, for help from the depth of Sheol, which means hell. You heard my voice. And it's hell in the belly of a fish, you know what I mean? I cried out for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. He's like, he's describing hell. He's describing a prison. Where he's at, the place that he is at. And there's a lot of people that think that's just, that's like not real. He wasn't really in the belly of a fish. He was, it's metaphorically saying that he was feeling really bad about himself. I don't believe that. I think he was literally in the belly of a well with seaweed wrapped around his head. You know what I mean? Again, that's where unfaithfulness 
gets you. Have you ever known a person who commits adultery and walks out on their spouse who feels like they are on top of the world with joy and singing from from the top of their lungs? I did it. I committed adultery. This is the greatest thing I've ever done. And they write a musical and, you know, well, actually, a lot of musicals are about that kind of stuff. That's not the point. Have you ever known a person? No. Never. They're miserable. And they will tell you they're miserable, at least in a vulnerable, honest moment. They will let you know how miserable they are. They cannot believe what they have stooped to. They cannot believe what they have done because they used to judge others for it and said they would never do it. But see, you never do. You never say that you won't do something that somebody else has already done. You've got to be careful, don't you? The only thing that keeps them from admitting publicly that they were wrong and finding their way out of the roots of the mountain, out of the bars of the earth, out of the belly of a well, is pride and unrepentance. Say it with me. Pride. Come on. Pride. One more time. Pride and unrepentance. One more time. Exactly. Pride and unrepentance. We know Jonah was prideful. And at least until we got into the belly of the well, he was unrepentant. But look what happens. Look what changes in his heart. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, a great, a great way to describe the condition you're in when you are in a state of being unfaithful. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. While he was fainting away, Jonah remembered the Lord. He remembered the covenant that he was in with the Lord. I'm in covenant with God. I've drank a cup of salvation. We're in covenant together. He remembered that. And you know what else he remembered? Oh, yeah. God is good. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in mercy. The very reason that I'm in this fish. The very reason that I wouldn't go to Nineveh. He remembered the Lord, turned his heart. And then look what he says next. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I was reading some commentaries this week just trying to meditate and chew on that and get some perspective. There's a lot of commentaries that say, yeah, in that moment of distress, calling out to the Lord, all of a sudden he had a brain lapse and started judging the people in the boat that were pagans and that were worshiping their idols, remember, on the boat. And maybe that's true, man. But I look at that and just reading some other versions. Let me read some other versions of that scripture. Can I do that? Jonah 2, 8, or 2, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2, 8 says... Uh, that was the NASB that I read. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. The Amplified says, those who pay regard to false, useless, and worthless idols forsake their own source of mercy and loving kindness. Wow. The NIV says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Wow. The King James says this, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. 
This is actually the most accurate rendering as you study back in the original language. Lying vanities. They who, they who um, cling to or observe lying vanities. In other words, lesser things. And you can fill in that blank with anything. It doesn't have to be a little stick man, you know, that looks like whatever. See, that's our problem is we kind of delude and deceive ourselves into saying, well, I don't have lesser things. I don't have vain vanities because I'm, I want to translate it vain idols and I don't have any of those. But the truth is, is that it's vain vanities, which can be anything that is lesser in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, and in our lives. Anything that would distract us and pull us away from the, the Lord it can be unhealthy relationships. It can be gadgets. It can be money. It could be anything. Fill in the blank. It could be attitudes such as pride, which is what uh, Jonah had. Pride. It can be bitterness like we've talked about for the past couple weeks. It could be anything. If you're writing things down and you want to walk out at least one good bit of something, write this down. Subtle idolatry is still idolatry. Subtle idolatry is still idolatry. And it forfeits God's grace and mercy in our life. Well, we're in the new covenant. This was the old covenant. The principle is the same. You find it in different places. He opposes the proud, which is a vain vanity. But he'll give grace to those who are humble, which is saying, I put myself in the lowest place and God in the highest place. Right? So we see it right there in James as well. Can't say, well, Jonah was from another dispensation or another planet. He wasn't. You know? In the message version, which I like to read sometimes, of Jonah 2.8 says, those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, he says it, I didn't, that's a great word, a great plan of words. God frauds. Those who worship hollow gods, God frauds, walk away from their only true love. It's speaking of unfaithfulness. Scripture with Israel calls it adultery all the time. You perverse and adulterous generation, wicked and adulterous people. When, our, when we are operating with these vain vanities and dealing with lesser things, we are literally in a state of adultery in our covenant with the bridegroom. We have to see it that intensely and that seriously because he communicates it to us that intensely. Amen? Am I like the only one that reads that sometimes in here all the time? Every time? He's intense about it. And subtle unfaithfulness, subtle adultery is still adultery. Unfaithfulness, idolatry. Amen? That's one area where if we don't have right when it comes to faithfulness, our relationship with God, forget it. Nothing else is even, even goes in line. But I will bring up out two more. The other one is family. The other area is family. There's got to be faithfulness in our family. Obviously, with our spouse, there must be faithfulness with our spouse because we are married to her. We are in covenant with her. We wear our ring saying, I will be faithful. Amen? And I let the world know that. I walk through a store and, uh, you know, maybe a pretty lady looks at me or something. I'm like, whoa! You know, 
<laughs> I'm kidding. Pretty lady stopped looking at me like 10 years ago. You know? <laughs> but the point is, I got this song. Don't mess with me. I'm spoken for. I am betrothed. Actually, I'm married. You know. <laughs> so obviously, with our spouse, there's got to be faithfulness. That's like the, the, the core of family. And I'll say this. There's, it's inevitable. I'm not saying it because the Lord's telling me right now. I'm saying it's because it's inevitable. Some of you in this room have been having thoughts that lead towards unfaithfulness and tampering with things. And I'm, I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. I'm saying by, by sheer uh, demographic, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Statistics. Somebody in this room has been having thoughts of, oh, I'm just ready to go somewhere else, do something else. He doesn't love me. She doesn't love me. Whatever. You guys know the story. We watch it on TV all day long. And we wonder why there's so many failures. I'm telling you. I'm not saying that was from the Lord because statistically I can prove that. But I am saying this from the Lord. Change your ways. Get out of the belly of the well. Turn toward the Lord. Remain faithful. There's blessing on the other end. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Remain faithful to one another in marriage. The other one under family is children. Remain faithful to your children. That can look like a lot of different things. Now, you know, it's you know, the way that you parent, the way that you're consistent, the way that you love them, the way that you discipline them, all those things. And that's a fight. If you're a parent, you know that's so hard to be consistent. It's so hard not to be frustrated. It's so hard not to operate in the flesh. It's so hard not to spank out of anger. It's so hard not to be frustrated. It's so frustrated that you want to throw them out of the car when you're driving 70. You know what I mean? I said, shut up. I told you. You know what I mean? And to provide Provide love, provide for your family, for your kids. You know, it talks about not providing for your kids, actually, and for your family uh, uh, in 1 Timothy 5. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith. That would be another way of saying unfaithful, you know, and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa, take care of your family. Take care of your kids. Be faithful doing it, amen? But I'm tired, and I don't want to go to work. I'm thinking about quitting because I'm not appreciated. Dude, you got some mouths to feed. You shut up and get back to work. Clock in. You know? And then I was, I was going to put this in there too when it comes to family. Extended family. Mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Mine are here. <laughs> you know? Cousins and uncles and aunts, the crazy ones that you see at the family reunion. You know, be faithful there. In 1 Timothy 5, 4, it talks about uh, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first be the ones to show piety towards them. In other words, we're supposed to take care of widows and orphans as a church. But you know what? I'm not supposed to even think about taking care of them until after first their own family has taken care of them. It's not my responsibility as a church leader. It says it to the church, but I don't even have to worry about it until after the family has failed to be faithful. Did you know that? It's because it's a principle. Be faithful to your family and to require their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of the Lord. And the third thing, and you guys might think this is, oh, you're coming from a selfish agenda with this one. No, I'm not. 
The third area that I think believers are supposed to be faithful is with the church. With the church. There's all kinds of, uh, of uh, scripture and, and stories and stuff that indirectly provide this principle. I think the one that directly talks about it is Hebrews 10.25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and really faithfulness. Not forsaking or neglecting to assemble together as believers, as is the habit of some people, but admonishing, warning, urging, encouraging, which is what we do, right? This is why we come. Not because we have some sort of quota. I've got to get in at least one good Sunday this month so that Tony won't be mad or so that somebody won't give me a call and say, Brother, where have you been? We're not going to do that. Look, if you don't want to come, don't come. We're still pressing on. Amen? God still has a word for his church. If you want to be here to receive it, you, you come. God still meets with his people in worship. If you want to be here, come. If you don't, that's fine. If the jet skis are better than the, the word or the preaching, which I, I could get that, you know, then go jet ski. But what I'm saying is that there is a principle here that if there is faithfulness in that area, and not even just to coming to church, but functioning as a part of the body. I think meeting publicly is definitely a part of that because you learn how you can function. You learn how you can meet others' needs. You rub shoulders with people that have the needs. It's a biblical principle. And all the more faithfully as you see the day approaching. Which day? The one we just talked about in 2 Timothy 3. If there's ever a time people need to show up for church, this is the time where people aren't showing up to church as much. I don't get it. If there was ever a time where people need to come and be encouraged from the Word of God and be in the presence of the living God, where they can have their, uh, uh, their spirit renewed, it is now in the midst of all this uncrazy, unfaithful stuff. I'm getting a little impassioned. And if you think about it, a relationship with God Relationship with family, especially the spouse, and the relationship with the church are all likened as a covenant relationship and are described and taught on as marriage, as an analogy. He is our bridegroom. Ephesians says that we are to love our brides. I'm going to love, love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, This, this is a mystery. This is a mystery. And it is a mystery. We are part of the family of God. Church is the bride. He's coming back for a pure and spotless bride. It's all related. That's why I picked those three. I could have said all kinds of other things you need to be faithful. Some of you are like, you thought the third one was going to be work. You need to be faithful to God, your family, and your job. No, 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 no. No. Oh, by God. No, 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 no. I'm telling you what. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> I was getting into character. <laughs> anyway. Um, listen, work falls under family. Work falls under family. The reason you work is not so that you can be the most successful man or woman on the planet, so that you can make the most money that you can, so that you can have your name on some magazine. The reason you work, really, is to provide for your family. If you want to provide well, that's fine. If you want to provide, well, anything, provide, any kind of providing is good providing. Whether you make... $20,000 a year or $20,000. 
a year or $200,000 a year. Should I just say the same thing twice? <laughs> or if you make $20,000 a year. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> my point is, my point is, is that work is not another category. It goes under family. You work to provide for your family. So no, don't neglect your family and be unfaithful to your family by being adulterous with your job. We can go into statistics now and talk about many people in this room. Amen? These are godly principles. And unfaithfulness is the new godliness in this world. And that's not right. Godliness needs to be the new godliness. You know what I mean? Let's stand.